Hey, everyone, you are listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. We are two neurodivergent mental health professionals in a neurotypical world. I'm Patrick Cassell. And I'm Dr. Neff. And during these episodes, we do talk about sensitive subjects, mental health, and there are some conversations that can certainly feel a bit overwhelming. So we do just want to use that disclosure and disclaimer before jumping in. And thanks for listening. As autistic ADHD business owners, Patrick and I both understand the importance of promotion and doing it in a way that feels authentic and genuine. If you are a neurodivergent business owner and you would like to place your services or products in front of a neurodivergent audience, we are now opening up our podcast for sponsorships and we're providing a 10% discount code for neurodivergent business owners. So if you are an autistic or ADHD business owner, and you'd like to get in front of our audience, reach out to Divergent Conversations Podcast at gmail.com for more information. And now we are going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. Workplace communication can be messy. Considering the lens of neurodiversity can be helpful for understanding this. Maybe you found yourself frustratedly typing per my last email in an office communication, perplexed about how a colleague or client doesn't seem to understand your very clearly written email. Consider this, visual information processing isn't everyone's strength. Perhaps a quick call can make a world of difference. Or how about including a video or voice message with your email? And this technology exists. Simple steps like these can make your work environment more accessible and bring out the best in everyone. Tula Consulting is on a mission to help organizations build more neuro-inclusive products and work environments. Tula does this by bringing curious minds to solve curious problems. Find out more by visiting tulaneurodiversity.org. That's T-U-L-A, neurodiversity.org. Thanks for hanging around, and now we're jumping back in. Okay, well, before we started hitting hitting oh my goodness words are going to be a struggle for me today i can already tell <laughs> just putting that out there to the universe um before we hit record i was telling sandra and patrick that i'm over here like kind of a giddy just a giddy version of myself because this is the first time i get to meet sandra we've me we've messaged on instagram and email and um every time we've had an interaction I walk away kind of with a deep sigh, A, feeling more embodied, feeling like there's ideas I'm kind of marinating on, that you just have a way of being in the world that I think takes people deeper into their experience and brings in and ushers in conversations of complexity in a way that doesn't automatically invoke psychological defenses. And I just, I don't come across a lot of thinkers like that. And so I, I've admired your work for the last couple of years. Um, so you, I first knew you as ND Narratives on Instagram. I've since followed your work other other places. Like I love your Substack, and I think you do kind of deeper writing there and you've just published a book. Um, it's never just ADHD, finding the child behind the label or it's in the process of being published. It'll probably be yeah. published soon February after we 20th. release this. Yeah. Yay. Okay. Um, so in my like fangirl excitement, what, what did I miss about who you are? How would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Oh my goodness. Well, first off, thank you so much. Uh, I don't think I've ever had such a welcome before and just, uh, yeah, 
really a lot of gratitude and just I have so much respect for your work. Oh my goodness. <laughs> You're actually quoted in my book. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. You're, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I love, yeah, and we'll get all into that. I should have came for your question, actually. What's it? Um, yeah, uh, my name's Bondra. I am the, yeah, the new new author, um, but writer, content creator, podcaster behind uh, Neurodivergent Narratives. And that's ndnarratives.narratives, mm-hmm. not ID and my platforms, but um, yeah, I'm queer black person um, who has few neurodivergence, autistic, ADHD, OCD, you know, goes on like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I write a lot about the intersection of race, gender, neurodivergence, um, and somatic work, trauma, mm-hmm. and yeah, and I write a lot about yeah disconnection and trying to. Um, I don't like I, I do some advocacy, but I like to. I don't like an us versus them sort of um, thing, you know. Like huh. I try to write in a way that helps us all see like our own humanity and the humanity mm-hmm. in each other as well. So that's I. I think that's what strikes me about your work is like you, you embody and you do what you advocate for. Right. So like you talk a lot about disconnection and moving toward integration and you, you do that in the way you communicate. Um, and I I don't, yeah, that's what I find. So just kind of so distinctive about your work. And so I would say grounding. It feels really like grounded advocacy, like it's integrative. Oh, wow. I I will. (laughs) I don't know how you are with compliments. I'm really hard with compliments. So I'll I'll, like ease off the gas. I'm like this, like my hands are like, you know. I'm so sorry. I'm like, welcomed you onto my podcast and just, you know. No, I appreciate it. you with compliments. So I'll, (laughs) yeah. Um, yeah, I, we forgot to mention that you're a somatic coach. So that's part of it. And I think yeah. that that's part of the groundedness of what you bring is you do often bring it back to this aspect of embodiment. Yeah, I I like to. Um, that and um, I do a lot of narrative therapy as well, like um, because I think that uh, I just inherently think that therapy is quite, um, yeah, violent. Like it's just, it's very um, mm-hmm. subscriptive mm-hmm. and we really need to, yeah, like take the problems out of the people, like, and put, you know, because when we can do that, we can start to see like other solutions. Like if the problem is inside you, then like basically the only thing you can do is blame everyone else mm-hmm. or destroy yourself. Like, so yeah, that's why I love narrative therapy too. So I I try to bring that a lot into what I do as well. Um, because I think for a lot of neurodivergent like people who have neurodivergence. Um, I'm trying to figure out like what else to say with that, by the way, because like, and, and I do like my things is neurodivergent narratives, but like, I'm like, kind of feels like an us and them sort of separate thing. And I'm really about connection. Hmm. I'm just kind of like, hmm. is that like neurodiversity, you know, which is like a whole, like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, how that is. But anyways, um, yeah, the whole thought about um, people do have, solutions or ideas like inside them like and they have different stories that they've been told or have 
grown up like learning, believing about themselves. And they might not be true to how they actually saw the incidences and stuff for themselves. So when we can pull some mm-hmm. of those out and then they connect so thematically with those other stories, the ones that are more empowering, the ones that are more aligned with their truth, then, um, yeah, then other solutions become appearance, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. It it does. And it makes me curious. I, I love the subheading of your book, um, The Child Behind the Label. Is that kind of what you're getting at in the book? Is that the narratives behind? Well, I, I won't make assumptions. I'll just ask. But, um, because I, I, I loved that subtitle of like let, getting behind the label. Yeah. Is that it's part like, of it, of getting to the more embodied narratives? Well, yeah. Well, finding the child behind the label is, um, yeah, uh, what I was hoping for, like, because the story, like the book is split up into like nine chapters plus introduction. And each chapter is, is a story about um, a different child um, in school with me as their teacher. And through that, you know, they all, what, the one thing they all have in common is that they all have ADHD, even though it looks, you know, quite different. And what I'm trying to say in the book is that like, you know, depending on you know, the intersecting identities, like the social markers of child, depending on the social markers of the teacher, how we interpret the presentations, ADHD, you know, are different. And because of that, that that impacts the kind of support that they're going to receive in school or whether they receive support or not. And like, it seems really like straightforward and very, um, you know, like that just seems like common sense to me because of mm-hmm. the way that the society is. But I, I guess it's not. Like, um, it it wasn't, yeah, it, I, I guess it's not. So each chapter looks at, like as I said, like a different child with each different identities and just how they're interpreted and what kinds of things are barriers to their learning um, and how we can reduce some of those barriers. And, and it really does come down to a lot of somatic work too. Like, uh, for the teacher, because, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of neurodivergence is like, you know, rooted in a lot of disconnection and a lot of dysregulation, you know? Um, so that's a necessary to be able to meet kids' needs. And, you know, a dysregulated body is one that feels unsafe. Like that's, that's inherently, that's what it is. So if you're seeing behaviors, quote, quote, presentations that aren't aligned with what you think should be in a classroom and what you learned was in a classroom and what you learned about what teachers should be and what students should be. Mm. You're going to treat these children differently. You're going to see those presentations differently. You're going to act accordingly. And a lot of the times, if you're looking at, say, a black kid, you're, you know, a white teacher, like I'm, that's being very like surface level, that you're, how regulated are you going to be whenever you see their presentations? Mm-hmm. Are you going to interpret them as ADHD or not? Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's that's what it is. And it's like if you can look beyond like the label of ADHD, because we all have a definition of what it is. And then and if we have that definition, if we're staying with that definition, well, then we can't see like that child. And if we can't really see and find that child, then how can we connect with them? And to do that, we've got to look at what we're bringing into our classrooms as well, schools or wherever mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So that's so true. 
And I'm just thinking while you're talking about how like the teacher's perception or understanding of what's going on and how they define and label it can have major implications in terms of that child's development, their educational trajectory and track, the support that they receive or do not receive and the way that they are looked at. And that's such a fascinating take on it from that perspective to break it down into those nine different presentations and then offer support for the educator as well. Yeah. Um, it's, I think it's why it took me like a while to write. Um, I, you know, I, cause I think it's really important to like note that like all kids, every one of us is impacted by like the culture, like the patriarchal white supremacy culture, like we are all impacted in it. So even in this book, like it's not just, you know, even though you know, we look at, I look at uh, with race and gender, um, socioeconomic class and whatnot. Um, I also include like, like, you know, talking a little bit about whiteness and how like how white boys were impacted, you know, how white, you know, I mean, boys, girls, and, you know, specifically on purpose in that chapter because of the gender binary and how that actually adds another layer of harm um, within the culture um, and who gets missed even and and what it means for even in, for even white children. Like this culture harms their, their own you know, whiteness harms their own children. Um, it's not necessarily, you know, we talk about it as being like a um, a privilege um, to get a diagnosis. And yeah, and you know, in some ways, you know, it is depending on who you are um, and what that means. You know, you know, f- there's a reason why, um, you know, black communities were diagnosing or weren't going to get their kids diagnosed um, for anything. It's like, do I need another label? Do I need another label? Um, is that going to benefit my kid? Um, yeah, so it's it is like we have to see it through. Like that's like our brains. We know like they do label everything, and we have a culture that does label everything, and and we have to go beyond those, including the label of ADHD, because you know for black kids it doesn't look like ADHD. Then it depending on who is looking. And that it does, like Patrick said, has consequences and has had consequences. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I love that you're getting be, beyond the label and even the ADHD label. Because um, you're right, the ADHD label itself still, like, especially in an education setting, it still influences how a teacher sees um sees ADHD. We've, we've had that conversation. Me and my my spouse have had that conversation of, um, do we want this medically validated in our child? Do we want the education system to know kind of know my, and my spouse is in the education system. So mm-hmm. knowing what happens when a teacher sees that label, um, yeah. and yeah. then it gets so complex too, cause it's the, I don't want another label. And then the other piece I often think about is, um, when the ADHD label gets missed, what label gets put in its place so either like like we know for black children particularly in the u.s um conduct disorders odd oppositional Mm -hmm. defiant disorders conduct disorders so those are 
an ADHD black child is more likely to get those diagnoses than a white child. Um, But also the internalized labels, right? Mm -hmm. I'm lazy. I'm incompetent. I'm too much. And so, yeah, this, this conversation of labels, both internal and external is just really interesting to me. And I, I think I, I'm one of those people that kind of defaults to the ADHD or the autism label saves the day, but it, it, it doesn't, it, it, it's helpful, I think, to have an accurate narrative, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it also creates other problems in yeah. the society we live in. Yeah. You know, like, that's the thing. It's like, because so oftentimes like parents would ask me like, do I, do I disclose this or not? And it's like, well, kid's going to get a label anyways. And like, how do you want that label defined for your kids? Like that's where advocacy comes in a, a lot um, because we do need to be able to like help, you know, have our kids be able to be who they're going to be, you know, and what that means. Like, but, but then on the other side of this too, it's like, when we're looking at a label, like what any of the neurodivergence, you know, any neurodivergence that it, it has, it has different consequences depending on what someone looks like and who's looking at them um, and how they define it. Uh, and so like even things like, you know, in the book, I've written something about, you know, ADHD is a superpower um, or ADHD is a gift, which is a lot of things that, you know, ADHD is like the strength lists of like, or more creative, they do, we do this, we do that, you know, whatever they are, I don't even have a list of them, um, sort of thing to try to like, I don't know, like to combat that. But when you look at it through the lens of um, like white supremacy culture, which, you know, then we got to ask ourselves, like, why do we got to be a superpower? Why does being different only become acceptable when it's beyond human? Like, what are we saying about, like, difference in this society? And particularly, this isn't like a, like, you know, I do know that black and brown people's, you know, people might, like, pick up the, hey, she's a superpower label, but where do you think that stuff started? Like, I'm going to put a guess on where it started. And I'm going to say why. It's like, how can you, and this, I think, is a thing with whiteness as well. It's like, you know, when you're different, you know, when you're farther from the, the, the center of privilege, you need to find a way to belong or fit in. And if you're already expected to be perfect, because perfectionism is, is, perfectionism is a, you know, a trait white supremacy, then, you know, what are you going to do when you're different and you're being excluded? Okay, well, I got to be better than perfect. I got to be beyond perfect. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what better? I'm, I have a superpower. So, okay, so we're going to go in to dehumanize our kids and each other. <laughs> that's, the, mm-hmm. that's the further dehumanize. We're already dehumanized because of the pressures in each of us in different ways to be perfect. Where you have like, you know, white men, like, you know, mm-hmm. the highest, you know, rates of suicide over the age of 50. Yes, anyone? White cis males, men. Like, can we all sit with why that would be? Like, you you know, that's like everyone is dehumanized under this culture. And then you put a label like, you know, any neurodivergence that says, you know, in blaring lights, like, I'm different. Mm-hmm. If you haven't like seen it already, you know, and like, how do we fit? 
how do we find a way to fit by like, oh, let's make it better than that. Let's look at our, let's look at strengths and stuff like this and say, oh yeah, there's so much I could say about that because like anyone knows anything about ADHD, you know, it's so consistently inconsistent. What do you do whenever that strength Mm -hmm. isn't showing up? (laughs) Is that a superpower still? Like, yeah, I can go on about that. I, um, so I, I've been like sitting with something in my own head that I, I wasn't sure if I was going to bring it into the podcast, but I think this this conversation feels like the right time. I saw a post or a comment on a post maybe six months ago and it grabbed me. And it's something about like when the kind of neurodiversity movement, like when has it entered into toxic positivity? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I sat with that of like, because something I talk about a lot here is the importance of holding the both and the liberation yeah. and the grief that comes with the later in life diagnosis yeah. and discovery. Yeah, sure. um, and it, it, and it, it's not just in the neurodiversity affirming no. movement. I think, I think the superpower narrative comes actually a lot of it comes outside of that movement. Um, but just thinking yeah. through like what can look like a strength-based view on ADHD or autism can can actually be quite harmful if it's not done with a lot of nuance and complexity, if it's um, excusing difference, right? Of like, well, you're different, but you're acceptable because, right? All of these yeah, superpowers. Yeah. Or if it's, um, if, if the narratives around it dismiss a person's experience of what's hard about yeah. moving through the world as a neurodivergent human, like it, and I think this is, again, this is why I wanted to have you on as you, you dive into the complexity. These aren't, yeah. um, rigid narratives don't hold up well here. They they can do more harm than help. Yeah. Like I, I think that for me, the, like, I just love, I love hearing people's stories. I love learning about people's stories. So like when I'm working with people, because I do a lot of one-to-one work, um, particularly with a lot of um, uh, black and brown um, peoples, but and but when I'm doing work with them, like the, the one thing that I, you know, hear through their stories is like obviously how complex they are and how they see what they've gone through. And through that, I just feel like, I don't know, people, we can get so, we get, we can get so trapped in very narrow storylines of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think it can go to the extreme, like either way, you know, and it can have an impact and, and we don't often bring in like the other things in our environment or the world around us that have had an influence on how we behave or how we've had to you know, resist um, treatment or, or the things that we've had to do to survive. And that's for everyone. Uh, and um, the thing is, is like, for me, it's like, we're not, nobody's free if we're like, not able to be if we are in our complexity. Like if we're, if we're still having to make up stories that are that we're not even like in or that we don't see ourselves in or if we're only seeing stories that don't include us if we're only um you know not allowed to speak about like here are the difficult like the this the and or but 
you know, all of that, then like, we're not going to ever, yeah, we're not going to have liberation. We're not going to be able to, um, I don't know, create a world that maybe our kids can, it's okay. Like they don't have to have a label. They could just be, you know, um, like it's Otis and, you know, here are the things that he, he needs to, you know, be at his best and he knows them. And here are some of the things that he might have struggles with. Like that's just humanness. That's humanness. We all have that, you know? Um, But I think there's a lot of like, obviously it's like productivity and capitalism plays a lot in, in that, like, how can you produce for, you know, the culture, like for certain culture, which is, you know, big on like quality, quantity over quality and all of this stuff and being productive and linear time, like a lot of this constructs, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answered your question, but I just kind of went off on one there. <laughs> I mean, it, it's called divergent conversations for a reason. We <laughs> yeah. diverge all over the place. <laughs> oh, well, I just I take what resonates everybody and just leave the rest. It's okay. <laughs> I won't mind. <laughs> I could say a lot though about the book, but I don't know like what you, you know, um, what else I could, you know, I'm sure there's lots I could say. I haven't talked about the body yet, though, but now that brings into it. But um, yeah, I think there's one thing about this actually I can add to it is like, mm-hmm. um, there's something about like, like when we're kids, right? And we're, we're in school, and we're trying to find a way to fit in and we're trying to like, you know, do what the teacher says and, and things like that. And I, and I think that, you know, we do end up changing a lot of who we are, um, you know, stopping down or trying to find ways to cope in order to become who, you know, we're expected to be as a student. And and I think about like even my own experience of how I had to grow up and just like how the, you know, like you said, like the problem, if you're the problem, if the problem is inside of us, mm-hmm. then literally like the, then the solution becomes one that we have to create for ourselves. Like, and as a kid, that becomes like, you know, blamed, shamed, guilted, you know, um, and trying to, and so that they can change, you know, try harder you're being lazy and no idea of how to do that. Um, Cause we don't know what try harder means. Do you know what it means? Like I still haven't been able to figure it out. Like, especially when I show up every day, I'm doing the best I can, like whatever that looks like, like that's the best I could do for today. Like that's it. Um, but to try harder, we don't know. And I think that there's a lot of, and it ends up being a lot of disconnection. And I don't mm-hmm. think it's a surprise that like ADHD overlaps with the uh, trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the be able mm-hmm. to disconnect, to have to disconnect from yourself because yes. in order to fit in or to do what you're told, you've got to self-betray. Mm-hmm. Like you have got mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. you know, ignore the, what's coming up in your body, the sensations that are coming up in your body, the language of your own body. You've got to ignore it. You've mm-hmm. got to deny it. You've got to um, make it and mean mm-hmm. another thing. So that you uh, can do what you have to do to yeah. fit, survive, so on and so forth. And uh, that so I, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, I'm done. 
Yeah. I just, I, I love, I love that you went there. I, I talk about that a lot, especially with masking, which, I mean, we know masking is a survival instinct. It's not some conscious choice, but it's, it part of the harm. I mean, there's so much harm of, that, that happens to, a, I mean, talk about fragmentation, right? There's a lot of fragmentation that happens when we mask. But one thing I talk a lot about is how we learn not to trust our bodies because yeah. we learn to betray our bodies at such a young age. And that makes us incredibly vulnerable yeah. because we've learned to override our instincts, our self-trust. And so a lot of the healing from that fragmentation is, oh my goodness, how do I, how do I learn a process of, of self-trust again? How do I learn to trust my body to stop overriding the instincts? Um, th this imagery of integration and disintegration and fragmentation, I'm really liking this, the imagery that you're playing with as you consider the people in front of you and and even in your writing because yeah. that feels so it's so key thank you um when i finished writing the book actually um i realized where i was doing the final edits i realized oh my god like this is about going from disconnection to connection hmm. like this is about this book is about connection and i you know because for the you know like playing what you said, like, and I said this earlier, like a dysregulated body is one that is, feels unsafe and dysregulated. Mm -hmm. And I mean by that is like, if you were not ready, like, you know, calm or content and just at ease, you know, you're not, you're not regulated. So you're not feeling safe for whatever reason that is, even like zoning out or like, daydreaming like that is a way to like <laughs> regulate like what my body feels is unsafe you know mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. what I'm like and, and a key point here is that a dysregulated body does not learn effectively like period like <laughs> yeah yeah so, and so no it, systems regulated when like when the sensory system and the nervous system is regulated, none of the higher level systems are regulated. Like no, nothing helpful is going to be happening there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, my kid, when it was during like um, uh, COVID and they were having them try to do video and he was not doing video, like he was like really unhappy. Um, they could not do it. But, mm -hmm. you know, so he didn't do really much any school, to be fair, um, during that time. But it was like two weeks left before school was they were going to go back. And the three months that he was off, like I taught him everything he needed to learn, <laughs> like three hours a day for like two weeks, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm bringing that point up to be like, it isn't about like it, in schools, like we can spend the time that we need to spend on making sure that kids feel good being in mm -hmm. those classrooms. The classroom culture, the the way that the teacher can feel regulated, the support that the teacher has, the community that they have around them as well. Like all mm -hmm. of these things play a part in like making sure that the, the culture that you create is one that has belonging, not just fitting in, mm -hmm. not just like, oh, hey, everybody's different and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But actual mm -hmm. belonging where the mm -hmm. child feels like, yes, like I can be here as I am. And the more mm -hmm. that I can do that and the more regularly that I feel like as a teacher, you, and the more then that I can create, help create that culture. 
uh, without that. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, there's so much dysregulation, there's so much disconnection. And I feel like we just, we miss the body in a lot of neurodivergence, like conversations. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's doing us so much disservice because there is so Mm -hmm. much that like I've been able to do with people once we get comfortable inside Mm -hmm. our bodies. Because the thing is too, is that like people are so, you think that you would go in and be like, okay, we're going to talk about like, we're going to do some somatic work. And it's like, we cannot do it right away because people do not want to be inside their bodies. They've learned that their body is unsafe. Yeah, I was so dissociated from my body by the time I was diagnosed. And like, I would joke with my therapist of like, don't you like, don't you dare ask like, where in my body is that located? Because like, that was such an intrusive question. Um, And so it like became a working joke. So if he ever asked it, it was legit just a joke because he knew how much I hated that question. Yeah, it's really unsafe to tap into a dysregulated body. Yeah. And think about the stories that we learn to tell ourselves in order Mm -hmm. to fake it or in order to mask or in order to kind of fit in. Uh Essentially, when I'm starting to work with people, like we just kind of get to know each other in this space. Like I spend a lot of time Mm -hmm. validating their existence and helping them Mm -hmm. see other threads, other stories that are more empowering in their narrative, you know, so Mm -hmm. that they start to trust me and trust, you know, mm-hmm. our space. And then whenever we start to do any kind of somatic work, it's very, very like, you know, because neurodivergence, like a lot of us need like to know exactly what's going to happen and exactly what we're going to do and exactly how it's going to be, um, which maybe a lot of somatic practitioners wouldn't know that. And mm-hmm. also like not everybody can describe or feel like what's happening in their body. Um mm-hmm. So it's very, very short. Our first session, mm. we're looking for safety, like what safety mm. can feel like, which is like pockets of like, oh, that actually mm. feels comfortable. Mm-hmm. I could hang out mm-hmm. there if I had to, like in mm. that sensation, you know? But mm-hmm. we learn that discomfort in our bodies means that we are bad. Like that's the thing. It's like, oh, I feel uncomfortable about something. I have discomfort. I must be bad. I must have did something bad. I'm bad. Mm. And nobody wants to be hanging out, tracing, tracking, feeling something like, oh, I'm really bad. Oh, this means I must yeah. be really, you know, yeah. like, like yeah. no way. Mm. So they've, mm. we've got to learn to like trust that some of the stories that they were told were different than how they actually interpreted it. So we have to pull some of those stories out so they can go, oh, okay, yeah, you know what? I felt that before too like this thing that happened and I was actually trying to you know they said that I was um being aggressive but really what I was doing I wasn't going to do any more of that schoolwork because I'd already done it before and they kept saying that oh okay yeah like can you tell me another time where that's happened and like it was and you were misunderstood like that you felt that way oh yeah and then they might tell another time and another time. Mm-hmm. And it's like all of a sudden they've got this whole story and they can feel mm-hmm. it in their bodies. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm-hmm. wait a minute. This is true. Like I've, I have tried to stand up for myself in the past. And then I was told that I was like being aggressive or rude. But actually mm-hmm. they didn't see it like that. But this is actually how it's happened. It's happened before. And then 
we're like, oh, and we can get somewhere. You yeah. know, then we can kind of dip in. But it's still very like slow, slow, yeah. slow, slow, slow process. And it usually starts with finding, it always starts with finding safety. Like Absolutely. I would never have anybody like go, oh, you're feeling anxious. Let's just track that for a minute. Like, <laughs> I'm like, what doesn't feel like that right now? Yeah. Huh. You know? So um, locate a part in, in yourself that doesn't feel anxious and anchor or, in that to yeah. kind of, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for mm -hmm. sure. And very short. And, and another thing that I recognized too is realized was that like, introspection issues, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know what the heck we're feeling like half the time. <laughs> Half of the thing is like reassuring people. No, we don't have to have a word for it. Like we yeah. don't have to, you don't have to label it anxiety. Cause like, what is mm -hmm. anxiety? Like it could be mm -hmm. anxiety riddled with shame, guilt, anger, frustration, like, and it all feels just a little tiny bit different, right? So mm -hmm. you don't have to label that. You could just tell me where it is in your body, mm -hmm. you know? And some people, they can't, they like I've worked with people where like they just can't find the words. So we were like, okay, well, like let's make a scale. How about mm -hmm. you show me your your you know what? We'll sit in a place, put the camera where I can see you, and all you have to do is just point to the part. And then on the scale that we made, one meaning, you know, nothing. Five meaning, whoa, this is like big. Just mm -hmm. tell me number. Hmm. You know, and let's go from there. Instead of trying to go, oh, I can't think of the, oh, I don't know the part, or I don't know where it is, or I can't describe it. or And then all of a sudden you get anxiety because you can't find the right word of what you're trying to describe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I've had people who were like, I can't, I, I, I can only see it in colors. Like, that's fine. Because mm -hmm. you know what the color means. We got to have help people learn the language of their bodies with the sensations and have them learn that they are the people that know that language best. So I have people who go, oh, it's like that. Does that sound okay? Does that sound all right? And it's like, hey, nobody's going to be like, last time you said it was, you know, orange when it was there and now you're saying it's blue. Was that right or wrong? You know, mm -hmm. like sort of thing. Like, I'm not your expert on your body. You are. And then it's, pretty natural, very natural, that you're not going to know how it could be right away mm -hmm. or even have a word for it at all. And it's okay if it's just uncomfortable. I don't want to be sitting there anymore. <laughs> I don't want to mm -hmm. be feeling this right now, you know? And it's okay mm -hmm. if last time it was this, you know, X and this time it's Y and I don't know if I got it right last time or not. Some people would tell me like whole scenes of what was happening in their body. Oh, there's this person who's talking like this and he's in bed and it's like a person who has a hammer. It's like, great. You know, can we say hello to that person? Is that all right? Do they want to say hello to it? Mm -hmm. No. Okay. So do you just want to ask it if, it, if you could just sit by it and just stay with it over here for a while, you know, like so much stuff gets done and it, and it, it helps a lot of people. Like it just shifts so much. I can't say enough about somatics. Like just however it, however we get it through, so however we figure it out. Like mm -hmm. we work together to just find a way that works for them. Um, well, part of what you do, it, it sounds like, is you co-create a language with the person for them to be able to talk about their body versus using this prescribed language that we've perhaps been given. You, you're co-creating it 
in in these in this one-on-one work where you're doing with people and you're helping them create the language for accessing their body. Oh, yeah, I never thought of that. It's a, you know, it was, I do like intro, like things. So it's like somatic focusing is where I do, um, which I base it on. And, and it kind of, it works really well for me because <laughs> it's all about reconnecting the mind and body. So if mm-hmm. you have been someone who's just like, I'm so disconnected from that, well, then it's going to be a small, like little process of like, you know, we integrate it into my session, our sessions. So like, they'll be talking about something and just be like, hey, so can we, can we, how does that feel in your body? Do you have it? You know, that's kind of a huge thing you've just said. Is that feeling like anything in your body? And they're like, oh, actually, oh, I, I feel it, you know, in my mm-hmm. chest or I feel that. And it's, oh, does it feel comfortable, uncomfortable? Or, mm-hmm. oh, mm-hmm. gosh, it doesn't feel good. Oh, okay. If it doesn't feel good or mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure. Uh, maybe yeah. it, hey, like if it's an I, I'm not sure, chances are you probably don't want to hang out there. Hmm. So let's find somewhere else that might be in your body that you'd be like, yeah, I could hang out here um, mm-hmm. for a moment. So we do, I guess we do kind of, we do kind of co-create a language. Um, one of the things that I do is like, you know, in focusing, we do repeat some of the things that they come up with and say or what they've like discovered they can hear it back to themselves and kind of be like oh yeah it's like that or oh no it's not like that it's very much it's very mm-hmm. very I'm a like I even tell them I'm your companion mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just there you're not doing this alone like mm-hmm. I'm just there you're the lead you tell me how long I'll time it you know would you like this lead in um you have 30 seconds left do you, you know, mm-hmm. do you want to continue for another 30 seconds or would you like to stop here? Like, mm-hmm. so it's very, I think it's very empowering. Um, and then we talk about like what came up for them, like what they are, you know, trying to make sense of it. Um, it's very empowering and it can be difficult for people because, you know, one of the things, you know, is like over explaining, you know, and it's just like trying to, you know, make sense mm-hmm. of this. And I'm like, with people I know really well that I work with for a while that I know really well, it can be like, and like, okay, I'm doing that again. <laughs> like, but uh-huh. you know, but it's also in a loving, you know, way. Yeah. Because yeah. For some people, you can't, like, for some people I work with that I know, it's like, stop there. We're done. Like, mm-hmm. okay, let's bring it out to something else now. Because for me, then I know that they're done. Like, they, they, they're starting to be dysregulated mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. that's also if I'm like, you know, I've, I've zoned out or I, it's become too much for my body. If I've been able to like, if I'm trying to over explain things, if I'm trying to create a conversation with you, does mm-hmm. that make, if that makes sense, that's usually it, my cue of like, okay, I'm going to come back to the room for a minute. Let's just chat about something else. So Patrick actually calls me out on this podcast. Cause when I get really, I've, I've said in this podcast before, when I get really analytical, um, sometimes that's a sign I'm kind of uh, low grade dissociated out of my body. And mm-hmm. so Patrick will at times call me out on the podcast of like, where are you at, Megan? Because that was a pretty like heady thing you just said. So yes, I, that totally tracks. Yeah, I, I do love doing this, doing that work. Um, and then just being able to like, because a lot of people I've worked with have been like somatic, like, oh my God, like, because they legit think that they're going to be sitting like for an hour, but with their eyes closed, 
and like having to describe stuff that they don't like know and have been there. And it's like, no, no, no. One minute. We might yeah. make it to one minute the first time. <laughs> so it's kind of like that. Um, but I, yeah, it's, it's fun. Like you get to see like, yeah, it's so many stories, so many. Um, yeah. That's the thing about uh, narratives. That's what I, I love. Like I love narrative therapy. I love the idea that we can, that there are so many threads to our stories that mm -hmm. we often get stuck on one that's, you know, very disempowering, very disconnected mm -hmm. from who we are. Mm -hmm. And I, I love the idea of being able to, yeah, help people connect through what I discover, you know, through some of my own stories or some of my own thoughts. Like some of the stuff I think of, it's just like, like, hey, this is what I'm discovering. What do you, what do y'all think about this, um, sort of thing? Yeah. yeah, I love that you said, you know, just the way that you approach this from different perspectives of like, what language do you want to use or what images do you want to use instead of this black and white thinking about this is how we talk about what's happening for us. Because for me, I'm one of those people when I can't find access to the words to describe how I'm experiencing something, I shut down, I get really shameful, like with my own therapist, if she's the person who's like, so where's that showing up for you? And I'm like immediately shut down. But if we use different types of language, if we use parts work, if we use imagery, then all of a sudden it becomes much more accessible opposed to yeah. saying like, I just cannot figure out the language to, to put into place right now. And that feels really frustrating. So I really like that approach a lot. Thank you. Um, and I appreciate that. I just, I, one of the things I love about narrative therapy and even somatic work that I do is that like I do, I do trust the people that come to me to be the experts in their lives. Like I, you know, okay. even as young as like my own kid, nine, like I trust that he is that expert. Like, yeah, okay, it's a kid, so he does need some like, you know, support, you know, guidance and stuff like that. But um, put words in his mouth, like, no. And, and it's the same with the other people that I work with as well. It's like, um, it helps, you know, because I don't have to be the one to have to be the savior, to be the solution. Uh, I, I, you know, what are they going to do when I, when I'm not there? Um, how are they going to ever, you know, believe that they are capable if they think that the only reason that they've been able to do this is because of, you know, working with me. Um, I want them to see that, you know, the, okay, this has been a teamwork, you know, but, mm -hmm. You know, and I couldn't have done it without what they know. Uh, and I think that's why it's been so important to look at intersectionality and to look at the complexities of, like, to use that tool and to actually confront my own stories about what I've learned about whiteness, what I've learned about East Asian, what I've learned about gender, uh, and where that's showing up in my own work, you know? Uh, because I'm human too, I make mistakes, and I've you know, and I've had to go through my own, you know, processes of like accountability, and I have a community of people that help me be accountable, and not online, <laughs> and they're you know what I mean. It's not an online thing, you know. This is, um, I know more about community and being held accountable because of the people that I, the advocates I work closest with, you know, like that's. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, that's where I learned to try to do better um, and try to see people in their wholeness because they see me and mine in the community that I have. Hmm. We all need that. Mm-hmm. I was just, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Patrick. No, I was just saying that's well said. It's important to have that community in place to, to create accountability and, and to have people who can support you in a, in a empathetic, caring, compassionate way when you sometimes falter or make mistakes too. Yeah. I think it allows us to be human, right? Yeah. It it strikes me how you say like, it's, it's not online. And I I just think about how, how important it is to have that embodied connection when, when there is, when we are being held accountable or when there's those hard conversations of accountability in online spaces can have that kind of fragmented feel because you don't have that connection. And so that connection is such an important part of the accountability process. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like that's, that's everything. You know, you can't, I don't know how you can be. No, you can't. I, 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 you need people like your identity is created and being around others too, you know, Mm -hmm. um, how are you going to do better when you have no one around you to help you like know what you need to do better? Mm-hmm. When, you know, because of the nature of some of the work that we write and some of the things that we do, like if I've had been questioned about things, which, you know, my hyper-focus uh, posts and things like this, some of my mm-hmm. stuff has been like questioned, you know. Um, uh, yeah, that's for another conversation, but I got other thoughts on that, but for another day. But um you know, and I've had to go to my people and be like, okay, like what's, what do I need to learn here? Mm-hmm. Um, and what do you think? Like, I have a really good friend of mine that got called out for something and, you know, that she automatically apologized for it. And we were, and she brought it to us, like as a part of her community and went, what happened here? And we thought a lot about it and we talked about it, went back and forth about it. And we were like, hey, you apologize quick. And this mm-hmm. isn't this this wasn't something to apologize like in this way for. So it works both ways too. Um, so it was mm-hmm. after that of being like, hey, before you jump out and do like, okay, I've got to do an apology mm-hmm. post or mm-hmm. what? Or I you have to put myself accountable, especially as Black women and femme, we have to mm-hmm. bring it to our communities really quick to be like, all right, what's happening here? Mm-hmm. And where is my accountability? Mm-hmm. Like, how am I supposed to be accountable here? Or am I? sort of mm-hmm. thing if that makes sense yeah the, the imagery that's coming to my mind is like if you're moving from a place of belonging like so so the that connection with your community of like being able to kind of workshop those ideas and if there's an apology to be had it's coming from a place of belonging versus coming from a fear of disbelonging right like yeah. i am so afraid that i won't belong and so i'm going to quick apologize before i've thought through like what is at play here? Um, I yeah. feel like the energy of that would be so different if it's coming from a place of belonging versus a fear of of disbelonging. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's that's a really key point. It's like um, I never thought about that, but it does make sense because those a lot of the accountability is a fear base, mm-hmm. you know, and just yeah. like I don't want to be like. I don't want to be like rejected or actually mm-hmm. worse is like, um, like kicked out, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. from the group. And like, mm-hmm. you see this too a lot. There's this other side of that too, where it's like, oh, I don't want to be connected with 
this bad thing that's happened, which is where all the violence, I think, comes out on like, you know, I'm calling you out sort of thing, you know, sort of thing so that Mm -hmm. I can be as far away from that Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. possible. And like that was ever the, that was never the connection of like, that was never about Mm -hmm. accountability. That was never for accountability. It's about how can I, like helping each other be at our best, like do better. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not about, um, because what are you going to do with all the people that you call out and decide that they're not allowed back in? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, what are you going to do with them all? like it doesn't make sense like you you've couldn't help them to you've well, got to help them do better you've got to you know whatever's within your capacity you might not be the person that has the capacity to deal with that you know which is why you have a community yeah. you know well and it when you have a culture like that where there's that that fear like right that fear of it, if i'm connected to this idea or this i'm going to be kicked out it collapses space for complexity. Yeah. Um, there, there's something you said. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to misquote you, so I'd, I'd correct my memory of it. But you did a live with Tiffy and um, Nai, Nai, EJ. Okay, yeah. TJ, yeah. TJ, okay. And on ABA and intersectionality, and uh-huh. first of all, just that was. Thank you for doing that. Um, but in that. In that talk, one thing I heard you say was, um, I think it was something like conversations that don't hold space for complexity are not anti-racist conversations. Um, I might be simplifying, but that there's something about holding space for complexity, like to be truly anti-racist, you've got to have these really have space for complex conversations. Like we we won't get into the ABA conversation today because that would be a whole other podcast. But like that's a great example of like. If you're not thinking about this with lots of different threads and thinking, you're you're gonna have a pretty kind of narrow sin narrative around it that's gonna be harmful. Um so this idea of the culture we build, creating cultures that doesn't collapse space for complexity, I think is mm-hmm. is so important. Yeah, absolutely. I and I, you know. We can get a whole other thing about like the autistic community and, and culture there, mm-hmm. you know, because so many of our most marginalized are like very, very like decentered in the mm-hmm. conversation. And, you know, I think a lot of that, I think I know a lot of that happens whenever, you know, the most marginalized in a space are not leading advocacy. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, when you're closer to the center of privilege, you don't see much unless you're always turning around mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like continually hmm. always turning around always looking back mm-hmm. and seeing who's behind you when you were so close to the center you know problems like um i'm autistic mm. versus i have autism become uh yeah yeah I'm focused of like a hill ready to be yeah. to- meanwhile yeah. if you turn around you realize you know what's happening mm-hmm. to like mm-hmm. around people, what's happening mm-hmm. to non-speakers you know, mm-hmm. and all the other complex um, identities that are within that space that actually need to be, there is a mm-hmm. privilege in being able to mask or full or however long that we did mm-hmm. before we were diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Like, we have to, we have mm-hmm. to realize that. And we also mm-hmm. know that there is, like we hold both, we hold privilege and oppression. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. But it's not at the same weight, let's say. It's not at the yeah. same. And and that's and that's that's the truth, you know? It, it's and, not the same weights and it's not that the stakes are different. Like the safety stakes are different. And I one thing, um, just recently having this conversation with someone, one thing I'm seeing it and I'll I'll like I will own my experience of this as a white person. Of so there's with there's discomfort with having privilege and having power. And there's a, a lot of move to try and distance from that. Yeah. Um, and I, as a white person, um, when I got my autism diagnosis and my ADHD diagnosis, I will say there was some like relief of, I don't have all the privileged identities and I, and I have my feelings around that of like, I, but it was a really important moment for me to realize like there would be some temptation to try and like, what's the word I'm looking for? Give myself an out for my white privilege by like over identifying with my neuro minority. But like, I, I I can't, I can't do that. I can't erase my white privilege because I have one marginalized identities, but I saw the temptation there. And and I saw the fact that there was some relief of I'm not all of the privileged things. Um, And that was hard for me to see, but I also feel like it's important because because I'm seeing that I'm seeing a lot of people trying to distance from their oh yeah absolutely identities. and like you know I think there's something about like and and in doing that first off and in doing that they do nothing with mm-hmm. it right um, besides like try to like keep hold it a bit you mm-hmm. know what I mean like that also happens and it's like well, I have it and I'm using it for my own thing, but I'm not doing it because I feel so guilty. It's like, well, no, like you have it to use um, because it's not helping. And it's not helping either of us though, because if I'm not getting everything that I need, you know, or if the most marginalized person isn't getting what they need, then, you know, really none of us are. But when we Mm -hmm. all do, like even when they have everything they need, then the possibilities for us, that means we are getting everything we need to. So like, and it's really, to me, that feels such a simple thing, like to like understand that, like I can see that the visual of like, hey, look at if they had all of these things and you only need mm-hmm. this one thing, look at like, it could be easier. You know, mm-hmm. if we were going for like all of the things that these most marginalized need and look at what we could, we could all be living with. Um, so I do like, and I do understand that there's a, there was a comment that I read and I'm just loving it, you know, and I, and it kind of. Um, it talks about like whiteness, like whiteness math. And it talks and it says like mm. white plus, and in this case it was queer, equals BIPOC. And um, and that really and that really hit me because like what was kind of what you're saying, that temptation of mm. like, oh gosh, I've got this identity. So I'm yeah. you know, can be most marginalized. Like remember, the culture is about supremacy. So it's the uh-huh. most, it's the worst, it's the best. So you can't just be marginalized. You've got to be like, oh, it's like the worst for me, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, because that's what the culture is is about, mm-hmm. you know. So it, that totally tracks that it would be like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, I want to mm-hmm. be yeah. like I could be more. Yeah. Well, and I want to distance from the discomfort of acknowledging my privilege and acknowledging how I participate in these systems. And yeah, absolutely, okay. I. I I see that. I see. Yeah. Um, 
I'd yeah. also say too, like, like I grew up, like I was a transracial adoptee. I was a, adopted mm. by white people. I grew up around white people. I didn't see any black people. The amount of mm. years it's taken me and I still have to work through my own anti-blackness. Like we all have that in us. Mm-hmm. Even black people, you know, like this has taken so much from like to my proximity to whiteness. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that mm-hmm. at 40, I could be like, oh, maybe it's ADHD because my little brother was diagnosed when he was eight. Um, and only because my parents were white and were like, the heck's going on with this kid? He's not, he's not behaving like other kids that we had that were white mm-hmm. from our own. And I knew that because of being my proximity to whiteness. And that's something that I've had to like grapple with. Yeah. You know, even like just, just being, being black, I've had to grapple that. And I still grapple with that. And I still do. Yeah. Um, so there's there's so many complex layers of that and mm-hmm. so many ways that for all of our stories and how they could be interpreted. And that's why, you know, I, I'm always I'm very big on like, you know, people being these experts of their own lives and people learning to reconnect with their bodies. This is where our truths are. Like 80 percent of our knowledge is in our bodies. The memories and things of what we know mm-hmm. is in our bodies. That's where that truth is. And there's a reason why we learn to keep disconnected from it. There's a reason why that we learn that, oh, that's bad. We're bad. That's wrong. What could we do and accomplish and be when we all reconnected to who we are, who we truly are? Like, what would we be saying? Like, no, nah, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. This is not, I'm not doing that anymore. No, I'm not working 40 hours a week. Like, what would happen when teachers went like, you know what? We're not doing this. What is this nonsense? You know? And when, do you know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. the, and mm-hmm. how that impacts, like how we, mm-hmm. everything, how we yeah. see ourselves, how we decide we need to show up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. yeah Patrick you look like you have a thought but I can't it, um Sandra sometimes with the three-way interviews there's always the like trying to decide who who has a question to ask so that's that's part of the awkwardness you get to experience today but yes Patrick you look like you had a thought there I just think it's important to I'm just thinking about the complexity and the nuance here and just just thinking just thinking okay um, yeah, yeah. I think that um, just thinking about my own identity, it's obviously very apparent when I walk into a room that I am a, a white man. So for the most part, or male identifying. So married to a black woman who mm-hmm. so just thinking of all the complexities here that mm-hmm. are interwoven and uh, how important it is, like you're saying, Sandra, to talk about the narratives and to connect with the body and to do the work and to do the healing, because I think that that makes a major, major difference going forward too. And I think for like, you know, when I'm thinking about whiteness and white males, you know, there's so much about like toxic masculinity and whatnot. And a lot of that gets like placed right inside, like the guy, oh, it's so toxic, toxic masculinity. And it's like, no, that's a, yeah, we can't, we can't do that. Like, that's not going to work. Because then what ends up happening, we end up having like, you know, substance addictions, you know, in all of the ways that, you know, trying to manage the discomfort without being able to 
you know, go to therapy. Acknowledge that there's more feelings besides anger. Acknowledge that, oh, hey, I had inattentive ADHD, but I was never seen as having ADHD. So I still had to be perfect. And I still had the expectation to, you know, need society, make all the money, blah, 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 blah. When really I just wanted to be an artist and like hang out in my parents' basement, you know, like I, do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but I couldn't be that. And then I'm told I'm lazy. Um, you think that the idea of like an ADHD diagnosis, for example, is like, you know, that privilege, but it, in a way, like what I write about this in the book is like, I think it just went, oh, okay, here's a way that we can mold these kids who are not fitting the, the Eurocentric, you know, school expectation, these boys have, cause we made it for them. They're still not fitting it. So let's just get them a diagnosis of ADHD. Not only does it differentiate them from the black kids that are behaving the same, um, but now we can like give them something that can maybe mold them better into who they're supposed mm -hmm. to be as, you know, male people, like male identifying people. Mm -hmm. And like, how is that? And like, that looks like a privilege maybe if you're, you know, in a type of ADHD or who is not getting diagnosed and you're a white male, you know, or if you're a white woman, um, are identifying a female presenting person and you're ex and expected to be the emotional hub of your home and the executive functioning head and you mm -hmm. can't do that because you're not supposed to be able to do anything really in school back then. So do you know what I mean? Like, so yeah, mm -hmm. so then it, maybe it does look like a privilege in that, in that eyes and those, in that context, if you can better live up to the expectations of white supremacy culture but mm. really it harms all of us yeah yeah i i really like how much you tap back into the like the collective we need to collectively return to our humanity and kind of and then that right we could talk about like individual narratives and then kind of more um collective narratives right we need to heal our collective narratives around what it means to be human um I, I want to be respectful of your time. Oh, yeah, thank you. We've taken so, so you've been very generous with it. And I, um, I was like jotting down notes throughout as, as we were talking, which to me, that's a signal that my mind has been very engaged and I've had lots of imagery fl flutter through my mind. So, um, first I just want to thank you for the generative conversation and for talking about your book and talking about the work you do, um, I, uh, and, and the somatic piece, particularly, I, I hear that term used a lot, like somatic therapy, and I really appreciate you unpacking what, what it actually looks like, because I think people hear that term and they're like, well, what what's that actually mean? Um, so yeah, thank you so much for being here. Um, where can people connect with you, find you, find your book? Um, yes. Yeah. Um, I would say the best place, like you can, you can see some of my stuff on, um, IG at, at nd.narratives, but uh, my Substack I think is where I'm going to go to now that the book stuff is done. Thank God. Um, I'm, I'm on Facebook, kind of the same name, um, and and now I can actually do another season of my podcast, which I'm really excited about too, because I want to dive in a little bit more into like creativity and um, just really like just living. Like, what's it like for living as? Mm with neurodivergence as our like fullest expression of humanity like how can we like reconnect to that 
Hmm. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to kind of exploring those topics a lot more as well. So you can find mm-hmm. my podcast, the Neurodivergent Narrative Podcast, mm-hmm. anywhere you listen to podcasts too. Um, and you can brush up on my, my work and writing as I uh, mm-hmm. get started to like recreate. I'm so excited to come back into writing again. Mm-hmm. I was excited when I saw your Substack newsletter that your book was done because I think I, I subscribed right. Like I got a few of yours and then I think you went deep into writing book mode. Um, and so then I was yeah. like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's coming out and yeah. more of you back <laughs> yeah. yeah i'm excited about that and um yeah in the book um there'll be uh, a pre-order link coming in the next mm-hmm. day or two which will be my eye in my bio well mm-hmm. by the time this is aired it'll be in my bios like across mm-hmm. social media and um on my sub stack um, perfect yeah. yeah yeah and we will include yeah we'll include those links in the show notes as well as uh a pre-order link to your book. Brilliant. Thanks. Appreciate it. And I appreciate the conversation. It's so good to um, be able to chat. It's so good to be able to meet Megan. I'm really excited that we got a chance to meet and chat. And Patrick, it's so nice to meet you too. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really yeah, thanks for being here. Really good conversation. And we'll have all of Sandra's information in the show notes so that you have easy access to find that, to order the book, to follow and to uh, support. So thank you so much for coming on. And New episodes of Neuro, can't talk. New episodes of the Divergent Conversations podcast every Friday on all major platforms and YouTube. Like, download, subscribe, and share. And goodbye. And now, pause for a word from our sponsors. From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. The Receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. Make sure to start your trial with that link and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up.